Hello, and welcome back to Troy and the Trojan War. Today is our weird reading from the Odyssey. It's a bit of a hodgepodge here, since we are in fact covering a lot of important plot information, but we're also kind of spanning a really important big gap here, just because of our time constraints. Um, so today we are covering chapters 12, 13, and 19. So we are skipping a whole bunch of the preliminary stuff as Odysseus finally does make it to Ithaca and hangs out with his various allies and tests the suitors, and we'll cover that in its own time. Um, today is basically our transit chapter as we go from all of the big exciting mythical adventures in the middle of this book to the big finale at the end, which we'll cover next time. Um, We'll have more to say about that in a moment as well. Um, so let's go ahead and jump right in and take a look at what's happening here. First off, Odyssey 12 is totally predictable. Um, like, shockingly predictable, if anything. We've been briefed in Odyssey 11 by Tiresias exactly what Odysseus is going to be facing in the near future. We were very specifically warned to stay away from the island of Helios and all of his cows and stuff, and yet, you know, inevitably we end up here because that's how fate works in Greek mythology. Um, but even more than that, like, we get the whole briefing from Tiresias about what Odysseus is to face, and now we get briefed again by Circe. Um, Circe gives us this whole series of instructions um, about what, in fact, we are going to be facing for the last leg of this journey in Odyssey 12. Um, and it's actually surprisingly involved here. Uh, like, we not only get, you know, what is the rest of this chapter going to look like, but also what are the alternatives? What could Odysseus choose to do instead of the things that he decides to do? Um, so first off, Circe says there's no way around it, you're going to have to face the sirens. Um, and she gives him some fairly specific instructions about this. Anyone who approaches unaware and hears their voice will never again be welcomed home by wife and children, she says, line 44. Um, which, importantly, that means we've got another one of our, you know, in danger of forgetting about home uh, adventures here. The sirens are apparently so enticing that anyone who listens to them forgets about home, jumps into the water to try and, like, hang out with them, and ultimately ends up drowning. Um, notice, though, that we get a slightly different take on the sirens here. Like, many of the myths that deal with the sirens, you just, you know, you have to shut them down somehow. Like, everybody has to deafen themselves in order to get past them safely, or alternatively, there's, like, a pretty great moment in the Jason the Argonauts where Orpheus apparently plays a magic counter melody, which, like, cancels out the siren songs, which I definitely want to know how that works. Um, mostly, I think it's yet another case of Jason the Argonauts emphasizing that men are better than women, and lady monsters like the sirens are nothing compared to the awesome power of Odysseus's lyre, because at least Apollodorus' take on Jason the Argonauts is really misogynistic, like, unembarrassedly misogynistic, like, just bad, and with none of my caveats about how actually Homer is just describing things pitiful as those may seem to be at this stage in the game. At any rate, notice, never again be welcomed home with wife or children, but as a consequence, she says, row past them first, kneading sweet wax and smearing it into the ears of your crew so they cannot hear, but... If you yourself have a mind to listen, have them bind you hand and foot upright in the mast step and tie the ends of the rope to the mast. Then you can enjoy the song of the sirens. So, first off, like, we get an out here. Odysseus is explicitly instructed, if in fact you do want to hear the song of the sirens, you know, just in case, 
like, this is what you have to do, namely tie yourself to the mast so you cannot jump into the water and, like, join them. Which I find kind of weird. But it's even more weird when Odysseus actually goes past the sirens and tells his crew, Circe specifically told me that I need to listen to the song of the sirens, so make sure that I'm bound hand and foot to the mast. Like, he very explicitly kind of misinterprets what she said to them in order to get his siren action on. Um, so go ahead and read that however you see fit. Notice, though, that the sirens, we actually get the song here. Like, I love it when poets, ancient poets do this. Um, namely, like, there's this really famous important song or this song with magical powers, and the poet apparently is, you know bold enough to actually include the song here in the text. Um, like, the really famous example is in Ovid's Metamorphoses. He literally tells us the song that Orpheus sings to convince Hades and Persephone to let his wife go. Like, the most famous heartbreaking song Ovid apparently feels comfortable, like, transcribing word for word here. Um, it's just nuts. Like, Ovid clearly has no shame. Um, but we do get the song. Homer tells us what the sirens are singing. Namely, this is line 192, Come hither, Odysseus, glory of the Achaeans. Stop your ships so you can hear our voices. No one has ever sailed his black ship past here without listening to the honeyed sound from our lips. He journeys on delighted and knows more than before, for we know everything that the Greeks and Trojans suffered in wide Troy by the will of the gods. We know all that happens on the teeming earth. So, the sirens offer knowledge. Like, that's their big secret. Like, yes, many have sort of depicted the sirens as being, like, sexy ladies slash, like, quasi-mermaids whose song drives sailors insane and, you know, like, it's a beauty or a sex or a lust thing. But notice that for Odysseus, at least, it's, a, it's an intelligence thing. It's a knowledge thing. They promise secret wisdom. But perhaps what's even more is that their secret wisdom is... More stuff about the Trojan War. Like, this is apparently something that everybody is so hot to learn about. And I do want to kind of stress here, like, we've bumped into this idea fairly frequently, both in this text and elsewhere. It undoubtedly ties into our overarching theme of memory here in a number of different ways, but it just further illuminates sort of what the Greek priorities at this particular moment in time actually are. Um... Like I said, many ancient traditions, many mythological traditions, many wisdom traditions very much put a lot of emphasis on knowing stories about the past. Like, you read the Poetic Edda or the Prose Edda, and it is considered great wisdom to know all the names of Odin and all the things that he has done. You read the Hebrew, Bi or the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and you will find tons and tons of passages that stress, you know, here is these lineages, here are all of these things that happened, this is secret wisdom. Um, like, here in the Greek, we get the same thing. The sirens promise to tell Odysseus about something that Odysseus should theoretically know. Like, he was there! He was at the Trojan War! What more do the sirens have to tell him that he doesn't know? But like we've seen this entire time, there were all these gods interfering with events, presumably things that Odysseus did not know about. Like, Odysseus probably didn't know that it was Aphrodite who snapped the helmet strap of Paris, and that he didn't know that Apollo, you know, slapped Patroclus, causing all of his armor to fall off. Like, that's just... Homer's intuition, Homer's wisdom, Homer's divinely inspired poetry as per the muses. So Odysseus is tempted by knowledge about the Trojan War, which I just find really interesting. 
Um, anyway, after the sirens, we are once again faced with a decision, according to Cersei. Um, namely, we could go past the Wandering Rocks, which we know from Jason the Argonauts is the Crashing Rocks, and she even mentions that the Argo is like the only ship that's ever gone through there. Um, different traditions have it that when the Argo went through the Crashing Rocks, the Crashing Rocks stopped crashing, in which case Homer is apparently not familiar with that tradition, or that tradition is considerably newer than Homer. Either way, Odysseus very specifically does not decide to go through the Crashing Rocks. This was an A or B sort of situation. Cersei very much says there's no way for you to get through it, so don't even bother. Um, instead, he has to face a different choice, namely between Scylla and Charybdis. Now, both of these are apparently horrible sea monsters of various types. Scylla is apparently this horrible six-headed monster woman thing who, like, hides in this big cave, and then whenever ships pass the cave, her six heads spring out and, like, immediately carry off six of the crewmen to devour. So we have a devouring-slash-eating uh, adventure again, like the Cyclops and like the Lacedragonians. Um, and Cersei specifically tells Odysseus, you know, Scylla is immortal. You can't actually fight her. And if you do sit there and decide to fight her, that just gives her more time to shoot her heads out and grab six more people. So the best plan here is to just sail as quickly as possible past the cave so you only lose six men but you are going to lose six men. There's no way around it. Like, this is not an option if you choose option A going past Scylla. The other option, though, is way worse, namely Charybdis. Charybdis is another giant, horrible sea monster who apparently dwells in this cave or at the bottom of the ocean where it's not entirely clear. At any rate, apparently on a regular basis, Charybdis just devours the sea. Like... This entire section of the sea is just swallowed whole by Charybdis, forming this enormous whirlpool, and it just destroys everything in its path. So, basically, the, the choice, or non-choice, that Odysseus is facing here is go through the crashing rocks and almost certainly have your ship destroyed, go past Scylla and lose six crew members, or go past Charybdis and undoubtedly have your ship destroyed. Um, so, obviously, Odysseus takes option B. He does, in fact, sail past Scylla. He does, in fact, lose six crew members. It's noteworthy to mention that he doesn't actually warn his crew about this. Like, there was nothing he could do, we're told, so it's like, why even bother to let them panic about it? So they just sail by. Whoops! Six crew get eaten. Everyone freaks out. They keep on sailing relatively small casualties compared to the other options here. So... That sucks. Lastly, we come to the island of Helios, Phrynicia, the place where all the cattle of the sun are hanging out. And once again, just like Tiresias, Circe warns him, dude, do not get stuck on the island of the sun. Um, if you do, you will undoubtedly, like, piss off Zeus and the other gods and get totally screwed even more than you already have. Um, so you'll notice that Odysseus actually takes this advice pretty much to heart. Like, they're sailing their way past the Island of the Sun, and he remembers, you know, don't mess with the cows, do not touch the cows. But, at the same time, there's kind of no way around it. Like, notice, this is around line 280, uh... Odysseus specifically tells his crew, Hear my words, men, for all your pain, so I can tell you Tiresias' prophecies and Circe's too, who gave me strict warnings to shun the island of the warmth-giving sun, for there, she said, was our gravest peril. No, row our black ship clear of this island. 
This broke their spirits, and at once Eurylochus answered me spitefully, You're a hard man, Odysseus, stronger than other men, and you never wear out. A real iron man who won't allow his crew, dead tired from rowing and lack of sleep, to set foot on shore where we might make a meal we could enjoy. No, you just order us to wander on through the swift darkness, over the misty deep, and be driven away from the island. And is it night that winds rise that wreck ships? How could we survive if we were hit by a south wind or a west, which sink ships no matter what the great gods want? No, let's give in to Black Knight now and make our supper. We'll stay by the ship, board her in the morning, and put her out to sea. Finally, Odysseus does agree, so long as his crew swear... A great oath, every last man, if we find any cattle or sheep on this island, no man will kill a single cow or sheep in his recklessness, but will be content to eat the food a mortal Circe gave us. So, they land. And they hang out, and they resupply, and they do not touch any sheep or cows. But while they are on the island, notice... Zeus gathered the clouds and roused a great wind against us, an ungodly tempest that shrouded land and sea and blotted out the night sky. At the first blush of dawn, we hauled our ship up and made her fast in a cave where you could see the nymphs' beautiful seats and dancing places. Then I called my men together and spoke to them. There's plenty of food and drink, Odysseus tells them, so don't touch those cows. And then, line 333, for a full month... The south wind blew, and no other wind but the east and the south. As long as my men had green and red wine, they didn't touch the cattle. Life was still worth living, but when all the rations from the ship were gone, they had to roam around in search of game. So notice, Odysseus very much tries to avoid the island of the sun. Finally, he does give in to his crew. All right, fine. Yeah, it's nighttime. Yes, there could be an adverse wind. Yes, this would be a really dangerous place to keep on sailing. But promise me, swear a great oath, that you will not touch the sheep or the cows, anything that belongs to the sun. Notice, Odysseus is trying to follow the instructions here. He's being a good captain while also trying to be a good servant to the gods and a good person in general. But when he lands on the island, Zeus screws him over. Like, for a full month, they are sitting there, stuck on this island, while winds blow the wrong direction. They literally can't leave, or else they'll be dashed against the rocks and destroyed. So, as much as, you know, Odysseus didn't want to land here in the first place, and only gave in after he had exacted a really powerful oath from his men, the gods themselves kind of pit themselves against Odysseus here. Like, he can't avoid this at this point. So Odysseus does what you should do in this situation. Uh, Hunger gnawed at their bellies, we're told, at line 340. So I went off by myself up the island to pray to the gods to show me the way. When I had put some distance between myself and the crew and found a spot sheltered from the wind, I washed my hands and prayed to the gods, but all they did was close my eyelids in sleep. Meanwhile, Eurylochus was giving bad advice to the crew. Listen to me, shipmates, despite your distress. All forms of death are hateful, but to die of hunger is the most wretched way to go. What are we waiting for? Let's drive off the prime beef in that herd and offer sacrifice to the gods of broad heaven. If we ever return to Ithaca, we will build a rich temple to Hyperion the sun and deposit there many fine treasures. If he becomes angry over his cattle and gets the other gods' consent to destroy our ship, well, I would rather gulp down seawater and die once and for all than waste away slowly on a desert island. So notice, Odysseus does the next thing that you should do in this situation. Like, when the gods are screwing you over, go and pray to the gods. Figure out what the deal is. So he goes up, and he starts praying to the gods, 
and they put him to sleep. Like, notice the sort of, you know, uh, the way that he phrases it here. All they did was close my eyelids and sleep. Odysseus was not planning to take a nap. The gods caused him to take a nap. So once again, Odysseus is trying to do the right thing and getting screwed by the gods. Meanwhile, the crew, as we know the crew will do, immediately starts plotting and they decide, hey, better to die on the sea with full bellies than to starve to death the way that it seems to be going right now. So they do, in fact, sacrifice one of the cattle, eat one of the cows. Odysseus is really upset. And notice Odysseus immediately blames Zeus for what has happened. Father Zeus and you other immortals, you lulled me to sleep and to my ruin while my men committed this monstrous crime. He gets really mad at the crew, but the winds do in fact change, and they take off, and immediately Zeus destroys them. When we left the island behind, there was no other land in sight, only sea and sky. Then Zeus put a black cloud over our ship, and the sea grew dark beneath it. She ran on a little while, and then the howling west wind blew in with hurricane force. It snapped both forestays, and the mast fell backward into the bilge with all of its tackle. On its way down, the mast struck the helmsman and crushed his, soul, his skull. He fell from the stern like a diver, and his proud soul left his bones. In the same instant, Zeus thundered and struck the ship with a lightning bolt. She shivered from stem to stern and was filled with sulfurous smoke. My men went overboard, bobbing in the waves like sea crows around the black ship, their day of return snuffed out by the sun god. And then Charybdis shows up and swallows everybody whole, and Odysseus gets apparently blown off course to Calypso, which is where we found him at the beginning of this book. But notice what's happened here. Odysseus was warned, not once, but twice, don't mess with the cows of the sun. If you can blame him at all for what has happened here, it's where he gives into the crew's demands. But notice, even that is kind of reasonable, considering that halfway through the night, the south wind blows up and the crew's concerns, namely that if the wind blew up, they'd be destroyed, become totally justified. In short, Odysseus is forced to put ashore on this island. There's no way around it for him. Once he's on the island, the gods specifically keep him there for a month, and then when he tries to petition the gods for help, they put him to sleep rather than actually hearing him out and helping him, which is why he gets so mad at Zeus. In short, Zeus punishes Odysseus by destroying his ship for a crime, namely eating the cattle of the sun, that Odysseus was forced by the gods to commit. Odysseus had no say in the matter. He was forced. His hand was forced at every step of the way. Which sucks. Like, again, we're right back into fate territory here. Everything that I was talking about in the Iliad, about how unfair the gods are, how unreasonable they behave, how they follow their own grudges rather than, you know, following their own rules in some cases. Odysseus tries to do everything right, or, again, he tells us that he tries to do everything right. Remember that he is the one telling this story, and his assumption that it is the gods' fault may be, very well be one of his biases here. His whole thing here, he's trying to do the right thing at every step, and the gods routinely and continuously screw him over. There's no way for him to avoid his fate in this respect. And that honestly explains why he's so upset about the gods for the rest of this book. Like, remember when we meet him on Calypso's island and Calypso says, hey, here's an axe, go build yourself a raft. He's like, what's the catch? Like, 
every step of the way, Odysseus has been, if anything, really paranoid about the gods. When I know the water nymph shows up and she's like, hey, let me help you. Here's this magical veil that, you know, you just wear this and you'll be able to float and you won't, like, be hurt by the, the, the storm or the waves. Odysseus's response is, no, I'm not trusting any of you fuckers. Like, you've already screwed me over so hard so many times that I refuse to accept your help if I can avoid it. And only after his his raft is destroyed and he's literally like sinking into the water because his clothes are being dragged down, only then does he actually disrobe, put on the magic sash, and make it to shore. He does piety, notice. He does, in fact, respect the gods. He always honors them. He's always careful to, you know, perform the right sacrifices and do what he's asked to do. But ever since this whole business with the Cattle of the Sun, Odysseus is rightfully paranoid that the gods are trying to screw him over. And notice that this follows through into Odyssey 13 as well. Like when, in fact, Athena shows up, and Athena and Odysseus meet for the first time, really face-to-face, -face, and actually have a conversation, which I do want to talk about in greater detail, and we will in a moment, notice that he's suspicious of Athena at this point. Like, Athena and Odysseus are BFFs, in theory, all throughout the Iliad, we saw that the two of them were basically an unstoppable force, and that Athena's always helping Odysseus out, and that Odysseus is apparently Athena's favorite. Much as this seems to be the case, this is a one-directional relationship. Odysseus does not see Athena as his benefactor, because again, he's been stranded for ten years, where the hell was she? As much as this is supposedly, you know, this profitable, good relationship between the two of them, notice that Odysseus does not like divine interference, does not want any part of this. This is all bad news as far as he's concerned. Um, so it's pretty justified based on how messed up the gods have been behaving, um, how screwy the relationship here seems to be. Um, so keep that in mind. Like, as much as in the Iliad we stress that the gods are untrustworthy and occasionally just giant assholes, Odysseus is responding in a pretty sensible way here. His suspicions, his paranoia is justified. Um, but let's back up a little bit, because as much as I do want to talk about Odysseus and Athena, I also want to sort of talk about the stuff that we are leading up to here. Namely, notice that... Odysseus is being helped out by the Phaeacians. Like, we talked about this. We didn't actually read the passages, like Book 8, where Nausicaa and Odysseus are hanging out. Um, but I did bring up and talk about the fact that the Phaeacians have taken him in and have helped him. Notice that they get punished for this pretty badly. Like, it's just a little kind of footnote slash editorial note by Lombardo here on page, or rather, um, just after line 125, he writes, line 129 to 93 are omitted. Poseidon turns the Phaeacian ship to stone as it sails into the harbor and hems in the island with a mountain. Um, the Phaeacians are badly punished for this. Like, again, we didn't read this, but the Phaeacians actually have this like blessing on them that Poseidon has given them, because they're apparently beloved by Poseidon, up until now anyway, um, that no Phaeacian ship will ever fail to reach its destination. They are, like, magically unsinkable or something. And the island is this perfectly protected, like, island with this wonderful harbor that is totally protected from the currents and stuff. It's basically a perfect place for all these people to do trade. But notice, Poseidon 
for harboring Odysseus, for taking him in, he wrecks them. He destroys their ship, turns it to, sh to stone, like it does successfully make the journey home, and then immediately will never make a journey again. And then he blocks the harbor so they can never use it again. He effectively strands them, takes away everything that he has given to them. This is what we meant when Aeolus, like, refuses to take Odysseus in the second time because he's clearly cursed by the gods. The Phaeacians did take him in, did give him hospitality, and the gods are punishing them as a consequence because Odysseus is this cursed, because Poseidon is this mad at him. Um, I just want to sort of point that out, like, to sort of emphasize and, and really drive home how unfair this whole situation is is to Odysseus and to everybody who helps him for that matter. Like again, hospitality has been a really important theme throughout this book and the rules of hospitality are really significant to the Greeks and to the ancient cultures in general. Um, but notice that this comes with major caveats and dangers. You help people the gods are mad at and the gods will screw you over because they're jerks consistently across the board. Um, the Greek view of the of the gods is really, really bleak. But anyway, let's look at Odysseus and Athena, because that's way happier. Um, notice that this is such a weird conversation, first off, or first and foremost. Um, Odysseus shows up on this mysterious island the Phaeacians have dropped him off on, and he once again isn't sure what happened. Um, Athena, like, magically distorts the island so he can't recognize it. Uh, line 197, Pallas Athena had spread haze all around. The goddess wanted to explain things to him and to disguise him so that his wife and dear ones would not know who he was until he had made the arrogant suitors pay for their outrage. So everything on Ithaca now looked different to its lord. The winding trails, the harbors, the towering rocks, and the trees. So Athena effectively disguises the island from Odysseus. Um... But then Odysseus wakes up, and he is looking around like, oh, crap. Another botched journey, another misstep, another detour. What land have I come to now, he asks. Who knows what kind of people live here, lawless savages or God-fearing men who take kindly to strangers? Where am I going to take all these things? Where am I going to go myself? I should have stayed with the Phaeacians until I could go on from there to some other powerful king who would have entertained me and sent me off homeward bound. Now I don't even know where to put this stuff. I can't leave it here as easy pickings for a thief. Like, remember that the Phaeacians give him a lot of swag. He's loaded down with gifts. They, they are very cool in their hospitality to him. So, you know, he is generously bestowed with all this swag, and now it's sitting out in the middle of a field somewhere, and he's worried it's all going to get stolen because the Phaeacians have totally screwed him over again because this is clearly not his island, and he doesn't have a safe place to put anything, so it's just a matter of time until he gets robbed. So... Notice that this is all part of Athena's plan, though. Athena is apparently deceiving him for her own purposes. Either because this is just Athena's game, like, I guess this is what everybody is doing these days, um, or because this is just how Athena and Odysseus interact with each other, how they relate to one another. Um, so notice... Notice the conversation between the two of them, because immediately, in addition to Athena disguising the island and refusing to reveal that Odysseus has, in fact, made it home, Athena also disguises herself. 
So Athena was beside him in the form of a young man out herding sheep, we're told, at line 230. She had the delicate features of a prince, a fine-spun mantle folded over her shoulders, sandals on her glistening feet, a spear in her hand. She addresses Odysseus, Friend, you are the first person I've met here. I wish you well. Now don't turn on me. Help me keep these things safe and keep me safe. I beg you at your knees as if you were a god. And tell me this so I will know. What land is this? Who are the people here? Is this an island or a rocky arm of the mainland shore stretching out to sea? So Odysseus asks her, like, what's the deal? Where am I? Who? What, what is this island? And Athena responds, where in the world do you come from, stranger, that you have to ask what land this is? It's not exactly nameless. And she tells her, it's Ithaca. It's full of great stuff. And Odysseus is really excited that it's Ithaca, but notice that he also doesn't immediately come clean. So we're told he did not speak the truth. He checked that impulse, line 263, and jockeying for an advantage made up this story. Oh, I've heard of Ithaca, of course, even in Crete, far over the sea, and now I've just come ashore with my belongings here. I left as much to my sons back home. I've been on the run since killing a man, or Silacus, or Idomeneus' son, the great sprinter. No one in all Crete could match his speed. Like, notice we get this elaborate... Again, deception. He's literally found out this is your island. You finally made it home. And Odysseus's gut impulse here is to lie, to disguise himself. Oh, I'm just this guy. I came from Crete. I'm in trouble over there because I killed this guy. And as a result, they're on the lookout for me. So I'm just looking for safe passage and, you know, just stopping along the way while I find somewhere else to be. Um, so it's this whole thing. Like, it's this elaborate disguise that he's putting on even now that he's supposedly home safe and sound. But of course he's been warned about this. Everybody's been warning him about this. Tiresias told him that when he gets home he's going to be surrounded by, you know, threats, that the suitors will be eating him out of house and home. He's been warned by Agamemnon, you know, watch out for those women, Odysseus, you can never trust those wives anymore. Who knows what kind of homecoming you're actually going to receive when in fact you set foot on your doorstep. So Odysseus knows better than to reveal his identity. He totally disguises himself here. Oh, I'm just, you know, this rando from Crete who murdered a man, and now I'm looking for some protection and hospitality while they, you know, are trying to, while I wait for everything to blow over there. Now, keep in mind, like, you might be asking yourself, why would anybody bother to take him in? Why wouldn't they, like, turn him into the authorities or something? Again, notice, murder is not that big a deal. Um, in ancient Greece. Like, it is definitely frowned upon, but it's not like there's a police force out there prosecuting people who are, in fact, guilty of murder. As much as Odysseus had in, in this situation, or at least Odysseus's alter ego here, would be very wary of Idomeneus and the rest of the Cretans, um, he would also be expected not to, like, go to jail or something, but to pay a blood price. And he's obviously got a lot of money sitting around, so that shouldn't be all that hard. Remember, you know, when Achilles captures people in the Iliad, he just ransoms them back. And on Achilles' shield, there's even this, like, scene of a bunch of people arguing over a blood price for a murder that had been committed. This is the way that murder is punished in the ancient Greek world. Again, these people are basically pirates. Murdering someone is not the end of the world. Just make sure that they're paid, you know, properly compensated for the murder that has occurred. So this, like, taking Odysseus in would not be a crime against the gods the way that Aeolus would be very wary of taking Odysseus in. The Phaeacians are legitimately punished for it. Like, weird as it is to say, 
harboring Odysseus is actually way more dangerous than harboring random Cretan murderer dude. Um, so this is the disguise that he takes. Yep, here is my plausible reason for being on this island for all of this swag. This is, you know, what I am doing here and why I am away from my homeland. No further questions, please. But notice that Athena listens to this whole story and responds, Only a master thief, a real con artist, could match your tricks. Even a god might come up short, you wily bastard, you cunning, elusive, habitual liar. Even in your own land, you weren't about to give up the stories and sly deceits that are so much a part of you. Never mind about that, though. Here we are, the two shrewdest minds in the universe, you far and away the best man on earth in plotting strategies, and I famed among gods for my clever schemes. Not even you recognize Pallas Athena, Zeus's daughter. I, who stand by you in all your troubles, and who make you dear to all the Phaeacians. And now I've come here, ready to weave a plan with you, and to hide the goods the Phaeacians gave you, which was my idea, and to tell you what you still have to endure in your own house, and you do have to endure, and not tell anyone, man or woman, that you have come home from your wanderings. No, you must suffer in silence, and take a beating. Notice that Athena doesn't give him necessarily good news here, but Athena definitely expresses her admiration and love for Odysseus. Here we are, the two shrewdest minds in the universe, she says. Like, this tells us a lot about their relationship here. Like, Athena clearly admires Odysseus. The reason why she's been protecting him, why she's been favoring him, is because she sees in him a kindred spirit. Um, this is Odysseus, the schemer, the plotter, the master of disguise, the master of lies and deceit. This is what constitutes strategy to the Greeks. Um, all this deception and, and sort of like backstabbing and deceit and trickery, like this is what Athena is all about. This is what Odysseus is all about. This is what strategy for the Greeks is all about. This is what is con held up as a contrast to Ares's you know, blunt, straightforward, I am just in it for the bloodlust style of war. Athena is deft, tactical, um, duplicitous in some respects. Like, we've seen this behavior from her and from Odysseus in, uh, in the Iliad all over the place. Like, we frequently see Odysseus sort of spinning these schemes. Um, but here, you know, it's literally all over the book. And notice that this is thematic. This is important. This is what Athena admires about him. This is Odysseus's distinct characteristic. This is what makes him who he is and what makes him a hero, top to bottom. Um, and it's interesting to see that that's the case, that the Greeks can somehow manage to hold their high code of honor, you know, Hector and Ajax facing off in totally legitimate duel-style battle here, but also hold up Odysseus with his deceptions and his nighttime incursions on the Trojan camp and his lies and his disguises. Like, all of this somehow coexists with each other. Somehow, you know, fighting a person man-to-man -man is like the highest honor a hero can commit. But also, you can sneak into, a, you know, an encampment in the middle of the night, murder everyone who's there, and that's also cool, question mark? That's also admirable? It could very well be that it's Homer trying to sell us on Odysseus here. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if we're seeing some of Homer's preferential treatment here. Like, Homer is suggesting one style of warfare over another, holding it up for, you know, admiration in a way that it wasn't before. Um, but at the very least, we should recognize this tension. 
that there is this sort of dual admiration, that Odysseus is kind of in many ways more of a con man than a true hero, but somehow this is held up as heroic as well. That you can be a hero through your wiliness and tricksteriness as much as you can be a hero through your feats of arms, your strength, your decency, or whatever. But notice that as much as Athena praises him, and as much as Athena warns him here, like Athena is all helpful in her speech, Odysseus responds with, shocker, suspicion. It would be hard for the most discerning man alive to see through all your disguises, goddess. I know this, though. You were always kind to me when the army fought at Troy. But after we plundered Priam's steep city and boarded our ships, and the gods scattered us, I didn't see you then... Didn't sense your presence aboard my ship or feel you here or feel you there to help me. No, and I suffered in my wanderings until the gods released me from my troubles. It wasn't until I was on Phaeacia that you comforted me and led me to the city. Now I beg you by your father. I don't believe I've come to sunlit Ithaca, but to some other land. I think you're just giving me a hard time and trying to put one over on me. Tell me if I've really come to my own native land. Like Athena tells him, you're home, congratulations, you've made it this far, it's going to be difficult going out from here, but I will help you. And Odysseus is like, oh yeah? You're going to help me? Now you're going to help me? Where have you been the last ten years? How have you been supposedly helping me? I don't think you're telling me anything. I think you're messing with me. Like, even Athena, who clearly and directly admires Odysseus, even Athena isn't trusted. Odysseus has been stung too many times by too many gods to take Athena's sudden turnaround as anything but suspicious. So as much as we know from the way that Athena has been acting throughout this book, as much as we've seen Athena very honestly interested in Odysseus's fate, remember, this is a recent development. Like, page one of the Odyssey, the first few lines there where she's, you know, bickering with Zeus and trying to get Odysseus off of Calypso's island, this is ten years into the journey. Like, we just heard all of the stuff that Odysseus went through in books 9 to 12. You know, where was Athena during the Cyclopes? Where was Athena during the Lestragonians? Where was Athena when they landed on Circe's island? Where was Athena when he was talking to the dead? Where was Athena when they were on the land of the sun's cattle? Now she shows up? And now she tells him, oh, you're on Ithaca, everything's great now, hooray! Not likely. Odysseus is keeping his guard up. Odysseus refuses to let himself become complacent. At every stage, as he gets closer to his home, as he gets closer to sort of retaking his authority, in the very places that you would think that Odysseus would seem most secure, he is, if anything, more paranoid in part because Agamemnon has warned him, in part because his experience has shown him that the gods are not trustworthy, in part because that's just who he is. That's his nature. So, long story short, Athena and Odysseus do come up with a plan together. Namely, Athena disguises Odysseus as a beggar, like shrivels up his skin, changes his face, gives him like rags. They both hide all the swag from the Phaeacians, and you know they'll find that in its own time. We'll get there. Um, and then the one person who Odysseus does feel like he can trust, who Athena sort of directs him to initially, is this guy Eumaeus. And we don't get to spend a lot of time with Eumaeus, is a which is a bummer. Like, most of the good chapters with Eumaeus are either cut from the book entirely, or alternatively we're skipping them, like books 16 through 18. 
Um, and again, that's a shame, because Eumaeus is an awesome character. Um, the key sort of to take away from these skipped chapters, though, is that first off, Odysseus meets Eumaeus, and Eumaeus is faithful. He is loyal, 100% absolutely loyal to Odysseus. Um, the swineherd, Eumaeus the swineherd, is in fact the character that Homer chooses to refer to in the second person. Like, remember how we talked about back in the Iliad, how, you know, Homer refers to you, Patroclus, you, my Patroclus, um, how routinely, like, he sort of singles Patroclus out as sort of the person who the entire epic is directed to. Eumaeus is the character that Homer directs the Odyssey to. You, you... Eumaeus, my swineherd, he says on several occasions. Um, Eumaeus, just as Patroclus was sort of this honorable, respectable, uh, beloved character by Homer, so uh, so Eumaeus is beloved and respected here. And the reasons why are pretty obvious, to be honest. Eumaeus is a good person. Like, he has apparently been faithfully tending the swine, faithfully doing his responsibilities around the household, faithfully waiting for Odysseus's return. Again, as we said way back in the Telemachy ad at the beginning of this epic, I stressed, you know, loyalty versus disloyalty is going to be a huge theme here. Odysseus is coming back, and this entire section, he spends a lot of it testing people. Testing his servants to see if they've kept up their responsibilities. Testing the suitors to see if any of them have any redeeming values. Spoiler, none of them do. He's going to murder them all anyway. Um, testing his wife and his family to see if they're staying true to him. Like, the whole point of this part of the epic, the whole sort of challenge that Odysseus faces here in the back half, is that he doesn't know if he can trust these people. Agamemnon has warned him, you know, my wife totally betrayed me. She murdered me with the help of the man she had been sleeping with. Um, beware when you get home that after 10 years, after 20 years, after 25 years since Odysseus has last been at home, that people are still doing your work. Remember, this is his household. He made it. He built it. The farm, the holdings, all of this is either the the business of his father or himself. And while, again, like, we in the 21st century have a fairly dim view of, you know, ownership in the age of capitalism, you know, we live in an age where landlords are terrible and, you know, renters and have no loyalty to their landlords and landlords have no loyalty to their renters and, you know, everybody is just trying to make a quick buck by scamming everybody else. As much as this was a thing that did happen in the ancient Greek world, the ideal that we're looking at, as Sarpedon told us back in the Iliad, is Odysseus is going to work hard by fighting in battles and defending his household from invaders and outside threats. And in return, they're going to keep his household according to his rules. They will respect his authority. So when he comes home and finds out that, say, his favorite hunting dog, who he raised back when, you know, the very beginning or back right before he had left for the Great Trojan War, has actually been treated like crap, and everybody's been forgetting to feed him, and he's sitting on this giant dung heap covered in fleas and filth, he gets mad about it. They're supposed to take care of his stuff better. The whole point of him fighting in the Trojan War, at least in theory, possibly not in practice so much in this situation, the whole point was he was doing it on their behalf. He fought for them for his household, for his servants. 
He protected his family, his underlings, the people who he has under his protection. If they return that loyalty on his part with disloyalty in the way of letting the household go to crap, letting the suitors hang out and eat all of his stuff, and for that matter, helping the suitors when in fact Odysseus shows up, then Odysseus is rightfully mad about it. Eumaeus never slips them. For 25 years, Eumaeus has been doing his job diligently and efficiently the way that Odysseus would have wanted him to do it. Eumaeus has still respected the laws of hospitality that Odysseus held so dear. Eumaeus is still keeping up his role as swineherd, as Odysseus would want him to, and even like filling in the gaps where other servants have fallen slack. You know, think about this the way that, like, where you work, if your boss is out for a day, things tend to get pretty slack in either the office or, you know, in the retail world, like, you'll have all these people who are away from their registers, who are sitting on their phones, things like that. You know, no besmirching the rather, you know, miserable lives of people who are getting paid minimum wage jobs, but generally speaking, if the boss isn't there to oversee things, it gets kind of messy. And Odysseus hasn't been there to oversee things for 25 years. So the servants have been screwing around. Sometimes literally, in the case of the maids, who have been sleeping with the suitors in the hopes that they will become important and powerful, and that they can the maids can someday be, you know, important concubines in some respect. Like, there's a lot of this crap going on in Odysseus's household, and that's why we end up spending three or four chapters, which admittedly we didn't read, checking everyone out. And against Eumaeus, the loyal swineherd, is very much this other character, Melanthius, the goat herd, who we will in fact meet when he starts participating in the actual fighting, but who we won't see his particularly ugly behavior um, here in books 16 and 17. Um, Melanthius is the perfect example of a terrible servant. He clearly does not care about what Odysseus has to say about his household, is absolutely trying to get in good with the suitors in order to hopefully get a place as like steward of the household once one of them becomes king because they've married Penelope. Like, Melanthius does not care about the rules of hospitality, absolutely spits on Odysseus when he is dressed up as a beggar, because again, Melanthius doesn't think that they need to be feeding any more beggars at the table when they've already got all these suitors hanging around, who in fact Melanthius does respect. And Melanthius will be punished for his disloyalty in the same way that Eumaeus will be rewarded for his loyalty at the end of this text. So again, the stuff that we miss is Odysseus going around and testing everyone. He tests the servants, he tests the maids, he tests the suitors, and generally most people aren't doing a great job. Most of these folks are going to get punished. They will receive their justice at Odysseus' hands. Though we'll get to that in its own time. Next time we will discuss the whole business of exacting punishment slash justice on everyone who is a jerk in this particular situation. Um, for now, though, I want to turn our attention to Book 19. So at this point, Odysseus has been hanging around in the main room of the household in Ithaca. The suitors have been abusing him and throwing shit at him and basically insulting him on a regular basis, all kind of very upsetting. Um, at any rate, Odysseus finally gets the opportunity to talk one-on-one -on -one with the lady of the house, 
Penelope is still holding down the fort, still trying to get, you know, what modicum of respect and decency she can get. And Odysseus finally gets this, the opportunity to chat one-on-one -on -one with her when Penelope invites her up to the upper rooms and, like, honors him with washing his feet and stuff because the suitors have been so crap to him. Now, this is weird. This is highly unusual. But at the same time, kind of reflects the ugly situation that Odysseus's household has fallen into. Remember, Telemachus would be the logical person to perform all of these responsibilities. But fun fact, Telemachus is actually in on the joke at this point. Pretty early on, like while Odysseus is hanging around in Eumaeus's household, um, Telemachus shows up and, uh, like, Athena advises Odysseus to in fact reveal his identity to him. No testing necessary here. Athena literally just shows up when Telemachus walks in the room, says, hey, Telemachus is actually totally loyal. Feel free to reveal your identity to him. Odysseus does. They hug. They make plans. It's all great. But where Telemachus would be the logical person to help him, Telemachus is wisely being very careful around the suitors because, again, they've been trying to assassinate him for the last 16 books. Um, so Penelope instead offers Odysseus a pass to the otherwise not normally accessible rooms, like places where even the suitors aren't allowed to go, and she gives Odysseus some special treatment. Specifically, Penelope wants to ask him questions, wants to grill him, wants presumably to ask him if he has any knowledge of Odysseus. And I want us to look through this pretty carefully, because Penelope's behavior here is unusual, to say the least. She has presumably not done this for any of the suitors. Like, notice that, their rela that her relationship with the suitors is way less respectable than this. Like, they can't call her. She, like, goes up to her room and cries for a long time. Like, that's not healthy whatsoever. And generally, in Greek households, women were not allowed to bring random men, strangers, up into their rooms for whatever they, you know, wanted to do. Like, the women of the house were not supposed to interact with male guests unless they were specifically invited to by the man of the house or were expected to by their responsibilities, like, hey, they're the wife and therefore should be performing the responsibilities of a hostess. Um... Like, even if you had servants who had wives in the household, they were usually kept in the servants' quarters or in the servants' own houses and not invited to interact with the men when they would all congregate. Like, the Greeks are hardcore patriarchal here, very protective of their women, and they do not want any bastard children sneaking through. Um, so for Penelope to invite a dude up anyway is a little alarming, a little strange. But the fact that she questions him as much as she, as she does could indicate one of two things. The first being that she really is curious about what has ever happened to Odysseus and thinks that this guy could somehow tell her about this, which is a bit of a reach. There's no reason why this random beggar wandering around through Ithaca would have knowledge of her husband, especially when she seems so convinced that he's already dead. But the other possibility is that Penelope suspects either consciously or unconsciously, either through hints of the gods or through her own insight, it's entirely possible that Penelope is wise to what Odysseus is doing here. And notice through this section that Penelope's behavior throughout seems increasingly weird. 
Like, let's take a look at what exactly is going on here, starting with around line 135. Line 135 of Book 19. Stranger, the gods destroyed my beauty on the day when the Argives sailed for Ilion, and with them went my husband Odysseus. If he were to come back and be part of my life, my fame would be greater and more resplendent so. But now I ache. So many sorrows has some spirit showered upon me. All of the nobles who rule the islands, Dulichium, Same, Wooded Zakynthus, and all those with power on rocky Ithaca are courting me and ruining this house. So I pay no attention to strangers, or to suppliants, or public heralds. No, I just waste away with longing for Odysseus. My suitors press on, and I weave my wiles. First some god breathed into me the thought of setting up a great loom in the main hall, and I started weaving a vast fabric with a very fine thread. And here she proceeds to tell the story of how she was weaving the Shroud of Laertes and then secretly unweaving it at night and making the suitors wait until it was done to be able to actually press her into marriage. But notice especially here that it is, as she puts it, my shameless and headstrong serving women who betray her. Everything that I'm saying about loyalty and disloyalty here kind of becomes painfully obvious when it is viewed from Penelope's perspective. On the one hand, we might say, you know, what does it matter that the serving women are servicing the, the suitors in the household? Like, in the Greek world, it is almost expected for serving maids and, you know, pretty young girls who you've taken as slaves at various times to sexually service whatever guests that you're having. You know, the suitors would expect this, and while they are definitely taking a lot of liberties here, it seems that this would be normally pretty acceptable. But notice the consequences of this. It's one thing for a woman to put out to a guest of the head of the household, but since the suitors are plotting against the family, since they are not welcome guests here, since they are abusing the hospitality of the missing Odysseus and his family, notice that that puts Penelope in a really awkward situation. She is trying to keep this household intact, trying to keep the suitors at bay, trying to be loyal to her husband, and notice that she longs for him every day. But her stratagems, her schemes, are themselves undone by the serving women. See, disloyalty has a real cost here. Like, as much as we haven't seen the sort of damage that's been done to the estate by all of the servants kind of slacking off in Odysseus's absence, notice that we do see Penelope basically hemmed in by her own serving maids, the women that she is sort of forced to rely upon, who she kind of has to trust because of their situation together. They are betraying her. They are the ones who are ratting her out to the suitors. And as a consequence, Penelope is effectively a prisoner in her own home. Like, think about this. She is being spied on by her maids, by her ladies-in-waiting, and she can't get rid of them or the suitors will get suspicious and get mad. The suitors, because they are this powerful force, you know, again, there's over a hundred of them at this point, um, they are a real threat to the people in the household, especially the ones who they're trying to, like, get one over on, the people who they're trying to sort of supplant. Um, you know, they're trying to marry Penelope so they can get rid of Telemachus and the rest of the household. So Penelope, who is trying to fight them off, is hampered by the fact that literally whenever she wakes up, whenever she needs help, whenever she is trying to do something outside of her own bedroom, everyone is watching her and reporting what they find to the suitors. Disloyalty is a big deal here. 
It is threatening her, threatening Telemachus, threatening her family. The suitors have eyes and ears in the household, and that's bad news. If Penelope could muster a united front against the suitors, they could pull off stuff like this. But she can't, because they are watching her through all of her disloyal servants. Now, Odysseus responds with lies. Again, Odysseus is maintaining his disguise here. He's trying to feel Penelope out, so he's not willing to trust her with that much information here. So he says, will you not stop asking me about my lineage? All right, I will tell you, but bear in mind you are only adding to the sorrows I have. Crete, he says, line 186, is an island that lies in the middle of the wine-dark sea, a fine, rich land with 90 cities swarming with people who speak many different languages. There are Achaeans there, and native Cretans, Sidonians, Pelasgians, and so on and so forth. We get the whole business. He makes up his fake lineage and, you know, his relationship to Idomeneus. Um, he is, in fact, using basically the same identity that he used with Athena, like he's sticking with the Cretan strategy throughout his stay on Ithaca. But notice especially the details that he adds about, quote, Odysseus. It was in Crete, he says, line 200, that I saw Odysseus and gave him gifts of hospitality. He had been blown off course, rounding Malaya on his way to Troy. He put in at Emnesis, where the cave of Eilithia is found. That is a difficult harbor, and he barely escaped the teeth of the storm. He went up to the city and asked for Idomeneus, claiming to be an old and honored friend, but Idomeneus' ships had left for Troy ten days before, so I took him in and entertained him well, drawing on the ample supplies in the house. I gathered his men, distributed to them barley meal, wine, and bulls for sacrifice from the public supplies to keep them happy. They stayed for twelve days. So notice, according to Odysseus slash Aeton, Odysseus, the supposed real Odysseus had in fact passed through and stayed with him for several days. Like, they got all the hospitality treatment and everything was great. Um, but notice, this could have actually happened. Like, Odysseus could be telling this story from the reverse perspective in this case. Perhaps he did in fact land at Crete and stay with Aeton and hung out with Aeton and watched Aeton. So one day, the, you know, it would happen that he would pretend to be Aeton entertaining Odysseus and know factually what had happened in this situation. Now, the reason why he's telling Penelope this is pretty obvious. He's testing her. He's trying to see what is her reaction to the prospect of Odysseus and somebody who knows what Odysseus has been about now that all these years have passed and she may or may not actually want him to come home. He's not sure if Penelope has been loyal or not. He's not sure if she's gone over to the suitors. She, he's not sure if she's, you know, gotten particularly cozy, cozy with one of the suitors and therefore are plotting against him if he arrives home. But notice her response is just to test him right back. She does cry. That's a pretty good sign. As she listened, her face melted with tears, we're told, at line 220. But then she asks him, Now I must. Now I feel I must test you, stranger, at line 233, to see if you really did entertain my husband and his godlike companions as you say you did. Tell me what sort of clothes he wore, and tell me what he was like, and what his men were like. And Odysseus tells him, because, or, Odysseus tells her, because remember, he is Odysseus, and he would know what he was wearing when he was in fact, you know, being entertained by Aeton, if this was in fact a thing that happened. 
So he tells her, I was wearing a fleecy purple cloak, brooch of double class, fashioned of gold, intricate design, hound holding its forepaws, and Penelope weeps. She immediately knows that he's telling the truth, sort of, um, and that this was, in fact, what Odysseus was wearing. You may have been pitied before, stranger, she says, line 276, but now you will be loved and honored here in my halls. I gave him those clothes. I folded them, brought them from the storeroom, and pinned on the, gleam the gleaming brooch to delight him. But I will never welcome him home again, and so the fates were dark when Odysseus left in his hollow ship for Ilion, that curse of a city. Now, real quick, we should notice memory again, like... Once again, memory is factoring a great deal into the way that the plot and the events of this story are working. Penelope and Odysseus are both relying on their respective memories to test each other and to prove their own identities and their own knowledge. Odysseus remembers what he was wearing the day he left for Troy and that he would still be wearing it when he supposedly came into the port at Crete. Penelope remembers what Odysseus was wearing and tests this mysterious stranger to see if they in fact had met and that he is who he says he is. Which he isn't, but let's not get too bogged down in this. Notice, though, also, that Penelope's response is that I will never welcome him home again. Penelope, admittedly, is very shrewd here. Every time that Odysseus tests her, she responds ambiguously. Yeah, the crying seems to be pretty legit. She seems to be pretty trustworthy there. But at the same time, all of her reactions are calculated to test the stranger. They are designed to sort of make him reveal his own opinions about Odysseus. Because remember, she doesn't know him either. Or if she does she has a sneaking suspicion that it's Odysseus and she wants to test him and see how loyal he's been to her. So either way, notice that she responds with conviction. Nope, doesn't matter. Odysseus is dead. I will never welcome him home again. And Odysseus's response here, again, as Aeton, is, wait, who said Odysseus was dead? Nobody said Odysseus was dead. Revered wife of Laertes' son Odysseus, he says, do not mar your fair skin with tears anymore, or melt your heart with weeping for your husband. Not that I blame you. Any woman weeps when she has lost her husband, a man with whom she has made love and whose children she has borne. And husband you've lost is Odysseus, who they say is like the immortal gods. Stop weeping, though, and listen to my words, for what I am about to tell you is true. I have lately heard of Odysseus's return that he is near in the rich land of Thesprotia, still alive, and he is bringing home treasures, seeking gifts, and getting them throughout the land. So Odysseus responds, Who said Odysseus is dead? Actually, I heard a rumor that he's on his way home right now, and he's totally alive, and he's bringing a bunch of swag, and it's going to be great. And he gives her tons of details about this, about the treasure, about Odysseus himself, about how awesome Odysseus is at getting out of scrapes. But Penelope is unmoved. Ah, stranger, she says at line 340, may your words come true. Then you would know my kindness, and my gifts would make you blessed in all men's eyes. But I know in my heart that Odysseus will never come home, and that you will never find passage elsewhere, since there is not now any master in the house like Odysseus if he ever existed, to send honored guests safely on their way or to welcome them. In short, she stays in her despair. And again, it's unclear why. Is she really 100% convinced that Odysseus is coming home? Because here's the stranger giving her some really good evidence that Odysseus is on his way. 
Is she, in fact, possibly testing this stranger? What is his opinion about Odysseus? If I am act like I am convinced Odysseus is dead, how much will he convince me otherwise? Or is he also just a suitor here to try and, like, buy my affections and supplant my rightful husband? Or is she fully aware of the fact that Odysseus is standing right in front of her and she's messing with him? trying to figure out what his loyalties are, trying to figure out if he's going to betray her. You know, again, he's been gone for a long while. He could have picked up with some other wife the way that Agamemnon did with Cassandra. Who knows what Odysseus wants? Maybe Odysseus wants to get rid of her. It has happened before in the Greek world. But Odysseus responds again, you know, I am not interested in all of this, like, generosity and honor that you are presenting me, i.e., I do not want to steal your household. And in fact, he asks, specifically, when she says, you know, let me get, like, one of the serving ladies to come and wash your feet, he says specifically, and I'm not sure why he's doing this either, none of the serving women here in your hall will touch my feet unless there is some old, trustworthy woman who has suffered as I have. Now, according to his disguise, this is modesty. Oh, I can't ask you to send one of those pretty girls up to wash my feet. I'm this hoary, old, grouchy, beggar guy. Like, I'd be really embarrassed. Do you have anyone who is as old as I am who's hanging around the household? And Penelope does. In fact, we've met her before. Briefly, Telemachus met her at the very end of book one. Eurycleia, who has apparently been around for a long time. As she says, of all the travelers who have come to my home, none, dear guest, have been as thoughtful as you and none as welcome, so wise are your words. I do have an old and trustworthy woman here who nursed and raised my ill-starred husband, taking him in her arms the day he was born. She will wash your feet, frail as she is. Eurycleia, rise and wash your master's, that is, wash the feet of this man who is your master's age. Odysseus's feet and hands are no doubt like his now, for men age quickly when life is hard. Was that a slip? Did we catch that? Penelope accidentally saying that this mysterious stranger was in fact her master, i.e. Odysseus? Does she in fact know what's going on here? Because the suspicion is pretty, pretty impressive. Like, Homer seems to tip his hat to us there. But notice too that Odysseus is screwed up here. Like Odysseus has specifically asked for some, you know, older woman trustworthy in the household to wash his feet. Eurycleia nursed him. Wouldn't Eurycleia also recognize him? And he realizes he's screwed up here. Like, he realizes that he's got this scar on his foot that she's going to see when she takes off his shoes. So, as a consequence, she's going to recognize him right off from this really important scar. So, we have this really tense moment. There's Penelope watching. Odysseus is trying to test Penelope. We're not sure where Penelope's loyalties lie or what exactly her game is here, but she seems to be testing this man, whom she may suspect is her husband. Maybe she doesn't. Who knows? We have all this uncertainty, and then all of a sudden, the game is up. Odysseus is going to be caught in his own game, and we get a three-page-long digression about Odysseus going to his grandfather's house and going hunting. And you might be asking yourself, why? Why would Homer take this climactic moment in the midst of, like, the most important part of Odysseus's return and distract us with, you know, stories about going over to Grandpa's house? But I want to sort of look at this story because it seems especially important to what's going on thematically throughout this 
epic, even if it isn't seemingly that important to the plot. So notice, notice the way that we're sort of given information about it. Line 420, the old woman took the shining basin she used for washing feet, poured cold water into it, and then added the hot. Odysseus, waiting, suddenly sat down at the hearth and turned away toward the shadows. The scar! It flashed through his mind that his old nurse would notice his scar as soon as she touched him, and then everything would be out in the open. She drew near and started to wash her master, and knew at once the scar from the wound he had gotten long ago from a boar's white tusk, when he had gone to Parnassus to visit Autolycus, his mother's father, who was the best man on earth at thieving and lying, skills he had learned from Hermes. Now notice, we get the moment. She knew at once the scar from the wound, but we just are immediately off to our story here. And apparently he got the scar visiting Autolycus. And Autolycus was his maternal grandfather, his mother's father. And notice, Autolycus is apparently really good at thieving and lying, because Hermes apparently directly taught him about this. Autolycus had visited Ithaca once, when his grandson was still a newborn baby. After he finished supper, Eurycleia put the child in his lap and said to him, Autolycus, now name the child of your own dear child. He has been much prayed for. So not only is Autolycus visiting and this honored guest of the household, which is honestly a little weird. Like, typically if you're talking about, you know, honorable lineages, you're always talking about the father's side. Who was Laertes' dad? That's what's really important. But here it's the maternal grandfather, Autolycus, who seems to get particular recognition and honor here. Autolycus is the one who likely taught Odysseus, or at least Odysseus inherited his skills at deception from, and Autolycus even goes so far as to name Odysseus. And notice the name that he gives him. Daughter and son of law of mine, give this name to, give this child the name I now tell you. I come here as one who is odious, yes, hateful to many for the pain I have caused all over the land. Let this child therefore go by the name of Odysseus. You know, odiousness. I'm not entirely sure how the pun translates here. I haven't actually checked the Greek on this one. But it seems pretty clear from the couple of times we've seen this connection between Odysseus and Odysseus, because there was an earlier one back in book one, that this is not exactly a pun, but certainly a play on words. Odysseus apparently means the odious one. Um, the person who is odious, who is unpleasant, disgusting, who is unloved, unliked, unwelcome. For my part, when he is grown up, Autolycus goes on, and comes to the great house of his mother's kin in Parnassus, where my possessions lie, I will give him a share and send him home happy. So we're given this insight into Odysseus's past. He's named, he's named by Autolycus after Autolycus's experience as being himself hated and despised and kind of cursed by the gods for his skill at thieving and lying. Something that should sound very familiar, what with Odysseus being hated and cursed by the gods for all his deceptions and disguises. But then we get this story. Odysseus does, in fact, go to visit his maternal grandfather. In due time, Odysseus came to get these gifts from Autolycus. His grandfather and his uncles all welcomed him warmly, and Amphitheia, his mother's mother, embraced Odysseus and kissed his head in beautiful eyes. Autolycus told his sons to prepare a meal, and they obeyed at once, leading in a bull five years old, which they flayed, dressed, and butchered. 
They skewered the meat, roasted it skillfully, and then served out portions to everyone. All day long, until the sun went down, they feasted to their heart's content. But when the sun set and darkness came on, they went to bed and slept through the night. When dawn brushed the early sky with rose, they went out to hunt Autolycus's sons, running their hounds, and with them went godlike Odysseus. They climbed the steep wooden slopes of Mount Parnassus and soon reached the windy hollows. The sun was up now, rising from the damasked waters of ocean and just striking the fields when the beaters came into a glade. The dogs were out front, tracking the scent, and behind the dogs came Autolycus's sons and noble Odysseus, his brandished spear casting a long shadow. Nearby, a great boar was lying in his lair, a thicket that was proof against the wild, wet wind and could not be pierced by the rays of the sun, so dense it was. Dead leaves lay deep upon the ground there. The sound of men and dogs pressing on through the leaves reached the boar's ears, and he charged out from his lair, back bristling and his eyes spitting fire. He stood at bay right before them, and Odysseus rushed him, holding his spear high, eager to thrust. The boar was too quick. Slashing in, he got Odysseus in the thigh, right above the knee, his white tusk tearing a long gash in the muscle just shy of the bone. Even so, Odysseus did not miss his mark, angling his spear into the boar's right shoulder. The gleaming point went all the way through, and with a loud grunt, the boar went down and gasped out his life. Autolycus' sons took care of the carcass and tended the wound of the flawless Odysseus, skillfully binding it and staunching the blood by chanting a spell. Then they quickly returned to their father's house. When Odysseus had regained his strength, Autolycus and his sons gave him glorious gifts and sent him home happy, home to Ithaca. His mother and father rejoiced at his return and asked him all about how he got his scar, and he told them the story of how a boar had gashed him with his white tusk as he hunted on Parnassus with Autolycus' sons. This was the scar the old woman recognized when the palm of her hand ran over it as, he, as she held his leg. Notice, the scar has a long and important history here. Like, that's why Homer breaks into the story to tell this whole story of the scar and how he got it. But notice that this is connected, actually, to a really important, happy memory of Odysseus. You know, the time he went to Grandpa's house. And Grandpa got all of his cousins and all of his uncles together, and they all threw this big party, and they all had, like, this big feast all in Odysseus's honor. And then they went hunting the next day. And I realize that, like, a lot of us listening to this lecture probably have no experience of this, but I come from, like, crazy rural New Jersey. Yes, that's a thing. And the first day of hunting season is practically a holiday up there. Like, half of the guys totally miss school the first day if they're in high school. Um, they go out with their fathers, they go sit in some deer stand somewhere, and they bring home some deer, and this is this huge rite of passage for them. Like, the first time you go hunting with your dad and your uncle and your cousins, like, that's a big deal. And it is for Odysseus as well. And notice, he distinguishes himself here. He goes hunting with his grandpa and his uncles and his cousins, and the boar charges Odysseus and stabs him in the thigh, but he manages to get him anyway. Like, notice what this means. If Odysseus is admittedly coming of age, he's probably, you know, somewhere in the early teenager, preteen area, somewhere between 10 and 14, probably. And he's coming home and he's like, guess what happened, mom? I hunted this boar with Grandpa Autolycus, and it rushed me, and it stabbed me in the leg. Look at the scar, but I got the boar. Like, he would be so proud of himself, so accomplished. This is this big defining moment for Odysseus. This is him finally asserting his heroic nature. The fact that he didn't back down, even as a kid, from this boar, and managed to get the kill anyway. 
Like, everybody would be so excited about this. Everybody would love to hear about this. And notice that we're specifically told his mother and father rejoiced at his return and asked him all about how he got the star, and he told him the story. This is what we mean by memory. And in some sense, this is where all of those disparate threads of this theme come together. Here we have a story that we're told, in this case by Homer, a story that reaches deep into Odysseus's past, a story that defines who he is. Because notice, all of those disguises we've been seeing, all those stories that Odysseus has been told to make things up about himself, essentially those stories were meant to establish his identity. Memory, storytelling, connects to who Odysseus is. The scar is this mark connected to this story, which is itself a memory in the minds of both Eurycleia and Odysseus, and identifies him unquestionably as who he is. Not because of just the physical deformity, the fact that there's this like gash of white flesh, but because it's part of who Odysseus is. It connects to his childhood, to his family, to his name, to his parentage, to his inheritance, to his skills, to his heroism, to the things in his life that he values the most. The reason why Homer breaks this whole story up in order to tell this little bit about him going to Grandpa's house and getting gored by a boar is because this is what makes Odysseus Odysseus. This is Odysseus, the grandson of Autolycus, the famous thief informed by Hermes. This is Odysseus, the one who stood his ground against the boar even when he was barely bigger than that boar and managed to kill it with a spear thrust anyway. This is the same Odysseus who founded this home, who built this household, who married Penelope, who fathered Telemachus, who went to the Trojan War and distinguished himself. Everything we know about him are stories. That's his identity. The memories that these stories impose, the memories that everyone has about him. Odysseus is thoroughgoingly defined by these memories. It is memory that makes him who he is. And Eurycleia immediately recognizes him, remembers the story, recognizes that this is, in fact, Odysseus, the famous guy who went to Autolycus's house and got wounded and did the thing. And, every, and she can remember, reminisce, back to that scene, that happy moment when he was hanging out with his family, telling these stories and getting excited and being a kid. Now, admittedly, Odysseus is really grumpy about this. She, he's upset that he has, you know, revealed himself here and threatens Eurycleia, don't let anyone know. But perhaps even more importantly, notice that Penelope is apparently zoning out. Like, notice the passage here. She spoke and turned her eyes toward Penelope, wanting to show her that her husband was home, but Penelope could not return her gaze or understand her meaning, for Athena had diverted her mind. Now... I'm not sure what to make of this. On the one hand, Homer seems to be pretty clearly indicating that Penelope has proof positive, been diverted by Athena, we have no reason to distrust him. Anytime that Homer has dropped one of these divine intervention references, we've typically taken it at face value. Why would we stop now? The trouble is, we've been a little suspicious of Penelope throughout. We're not sure what her game is, where her head is at, what she actually is feeling in this situation. 
And as much as the men in Homer seem pretty guileless as far as, like, telling people what they're feeling and announcing exactly to God and everyone exactly what's going on in their minds, except for Odysseus, who will frequently do the same thing but lying while he does it, Penelope has been really guarded. So as much as we're told, you know, Athena diverted her mind, that seems awfully convenient in this situation. Like, her husband has just given himself away, Euryclea has just figured out who he is, and Penelope is somehow daydreaming off in La La Land. Athena has just sort of distracted her for a little while, like put her into a paralytic state or something. On the one hand, we should probably take this at face value and assume that Penelope doesn't know what's going on and doesn't recognize what's happening and that the scheme of Odysseus and Athena is still going strong. But many, having read this book, having heard this epic, having known this material, have come to different conclusions. Many have wondered, what if Penelope knew exactly what was going on? People like Margaret Atwood, who you probably know. She's the one who wrote The Handmaid's Tale, you know, that show that everyone was so excited about for like five years, and everyone is still saying, oh, look, we're becoming just like The Handmaid's Tale. No, we're not, but, you know, Margaret Atwood is still a really awesome writer, and it's still a great work of imagination, even if the show is a bit overblown. She wrote this other book called The Penelope Ad, where she writes basically the story of the Odyssey from Penelope's perspective, and rather than being this sort of gormless, totally oblivious, you know, wife just waiting for her husband's return, Penelope is well aware of the fact that it's her husband walking through the door. She is the one testing him in this scene, instead of the other way around. And she, in fact, just kind of lets him do his childish disguise, even though she sees right through it. And on some level, notice that Homer's kind of done this a lot with his female characters. Helen is the one who sees right through Telemachus's disguise early on. Helen is the one who apparently saw right through the Trojan horse way back in Troy. Andromache sees right through what's going on with Hector in the Iliad, and so do the other women that we've encountered. Athena sees through everyone. She is definitely the wisest and most intelligent character of all of the gods and goddesses. And here we have Penelope, another female character, distinguished for her ability to get one over on the suitors, for her ability to deceive and test, just like Odysseus does. You know, just as Andromache was a great match for Hector, so is Penelope a great match for Odysseus. And we're suddenly supposed to believe that in this pivotal moment when Odysseus, like, drops his guard and everything is revealed, she's somehow just checked out? Maybe she knows. Maybe she knows exactly what's going on. Maybe it's even more interesting to read this with Penelope's total awareness in mind. Because notice, if anything, she doubles down on her despair in the next passage. She tells us that there was this huge dream that she had, where this, like, all these geese were around, and they're, like, being really annoying, and this eagle comes down from the mountain and kills them all. And Odysseus is like, well, that's pretty obvious what that means. And Penelope's like, wait, don't interrupt. I was told by the eagle exactly how to interpret this dream, even if, in case you didn't pick up on the message, namely, Take heart, daughter of famed Icarius, this is no dream but a true vision, line 600, that you can trust. The geese are the suitors, and I, who was once an eagle, am now your husband come back, and I will deal out doom, a grisly death for all of the suitors. And Odysseus is like, 
So it's obvious then. You had this dream and the dream told you exactly what's going on. The suitors are all going to get wrecked when your husband, the eagle, gets home. And Odysseus is coming home for you. And Penelope responds, nope. Stranger, you should know that dreams are hard to interpret and don't always come true, line 615. There are two gates for dreams to drift through, one made of horn and the other of ivory. Dreams that pass through the gate of ivory are deceptive dreams and will not come true. But when someone has a dream that is passed through the gate of polished horn, that dream will come true. My strange dream, though, did not come from there. If it had, it would have been welcome to me and my child. What? Like, okay, we'll grant that there's, you know, lying dreams and good dreams. We've seen that. Like, we've seen good dreams, like the one that Patroclus sort of conjures up in Achilles when Achilles has neglected to bury Patroclus in a timely fashion. We've seen deceptive dreams, like the one that Zeus sent to Agamemnon to deceive him into advancing in the Iliad 2. We know that this is true. But the whole point of a story like that, oh, there are good dreams and bad dreams, is to prove you never know which one is which. You don't know whether a dream that you've got is deceptive or true. You have no idea whether it's coming through the gate of ivory, and therefore a lie, or the gate of horn, and therefore the truth. But Penelope says, it clearly didn't come from the gate of horn. This is clearly a lie. If it had, it would have been great. But it didn't. She offers up nothing in the way of justification or reasoning. There is no good reason for Penelope to disbelieve this dream, and yet somehow she persists. And again, we're left kind of scratching our heads. Is this the story of a woman who is so pained, so traumatized by her husband's long absence, by trying to hold down the fort while he's been gone, trying to deceive the suitors and put off her inevitable marriage, that at this point she simply will not admit to herself that her husband can come home at all, period? Or is this the story of a woman who is testing her husband? who recognizes that things are changing and doesn't know if she can trust this man who's been gone for 20, 20 plus years. In either case, we're left with a really interesting picture of a really interesting woman. And Homer doesn't really offer an answer to this question. All we see her do is test Odysseus and weep. Clearly, she cares about him. That much is obvious. If Odysseus was here to test Penelope's loyalty, he's probably got more than enough evidence at this point. But does Penelope have Odysseus's loyalty? That seems the bigger question here. Unfortunately, we'll get an answer to that shortly. For now, though, we move on to the big test. Penelope, once again, through her potentially who-knows reasoning, has come up with this new challenge. Okay, Odysseus used to, for fun, shoot an arrow through 12 axe heads. If, in fact, one of the suitors can do that, then he can take the place of my husband. And notice, this seems, again, to be an ambivalent test. On the one hand, this could be the test of a despairing woman who is looking for a replacement for her husband. On the other hand, if in fact Penelope has a suspicion that Odysseus is the guy in front of her, this is a perfect way to sort of set him up for victory. If he's the only one who can pull this feat off, then it stands to reason that having him here, she would make a task that would clearly distinguish Odysseus from everybody else. She's setting him up to win. So once again, we're not sure. But at least the plot going forward is clear. It's time for a test. It's time to bring all this testing of the household to an end and instead see if Odysseus can, in fact, overcome the suitors, 
fulfill his destiny and take his place as the rightful head of the household. And that we'll talk about next time. But before we leave, I should make some caveats. First off, I'm not going to record a brand new lecture for Odyssey 20-24, like as much as that is something that we definitely should talk about. I have recorded effectively the same lecture for my mythology class, so I'm just going to reuse it here. Um, so keep in mind, if you are in fact in my Troy, the Trojan War class, like... Yes, it may not have exactly the right information. We may It may refer to things that you don't know about. It should be fairly minor, though. The key there is, once again, to talk about the last chunk of the Odyssey, so all the relevant information will be there. Just bear with me if, in fact, there's some stuff that doesn't seem to make sense or I'm referring to assignments that don't exist or whatever. Um, likewise, for those of you who are not in my Tro Troy and the Trojan War class and who are just listening because you are my devoted fans on the internet or whatever else has motivated you to do, you do this, keep in mind, just go back and listen to that one if that's what you're doing. It is, in fact, in the podcast description, like if you scroll through the apparently very long and involved history of me uploading stuff to Anchor slash Spotify slash whatever you're listening to this to, um, yeah, it should be there. Just re-listen to that or whatever you're going to do. Um, for next week, though, uh, when we in fact start talking about the history and the archaeology of the Greek and Hittite world, um, we are very much switching gears after this. Um, so definitely listen to that lecture on 20 to 24 or, you know, just come to class. We'll be talking about it there. Um, from here on out, though, we are definitely getting away from the Odyssey and the Iliad. Now that we know Homer pretty well, we can finally start talking about Homer from the perspective of other writers, other cultures, and indeed the 20th century as well. Um, for trying the Trojan War students, don't worry. I will give you all the appropriate links. Uh, you will hear everything you need to hear. For those of you who, again, are out there in Internet land, I should warn you, I am going to be doing these as PowerPoint presentations for my students in the class, and therefore they will be videos, not podcasts. Um, so, if you are looking for the continuation of this class, I will probably have all the appropriate links on my website, professorkozlowski.wordpress.com. Um, if you are familiar with my YouTube channel, that's where they will inevitably show up. Um, I will definitely include links, again, on my, uh, on my website to the completed lectures once they're done. It might take me a little while, so if you are, like, listening to these in quick succession, uh, sorry about that. Just keep an eye out. I will make sure that everything is connected. Um, but you won't see them here. You'll have to go through my website or through my YouTube channel to get to them, because Anchor doesn't do videos, or if it does, I'm not aware of it at this point. Maybe it does. Who knows? Life's a mystery. At any rate, keep an eye out for that. It should be fascinating stuff. I'm really looking forward to talking about the whole Akan and uh, Hittite history stuff, the archaeological stuff, possibly talking about some Greek artwork stuff. It should be a new, a different sort of change of pace for my usual material, but fascinating nonetheless. Um, anyway... However you take all this in, whatever situation you find yourself in when you're listening to this, I do look forward to talking about all of this stuff with you soon, and I look forward to seeing you there.